Welcome to Status. I'm Manijay Nasrabadi. This is the second interview in the 1979 Generation, a series launched by Jedaleya's Iran page. We are creating an audio archive of the memories and insights of Iranian feminists who participated in the 1978-1979 revolution, and in particular, working to expand available knowledge about the women's uprising that occurred in Tehran in March 1979. The eruption of a mass movement of Iranian women who supported the revolution and demanded equality for women and men in the new society has all too often been missing from the story. In fact, the Iranian revolution involved the unprecedented politicization and mobilization of Iranian women from various economic classes, with varying degrees of religiosity, and with diverse ideological commitments. It brought into being multiple forms of feminism and women's organizing that have continued to shape Iranian society. The goal of this series is to gather and make accessible the memories, knowledge, and insights of the 1979 generation as a crucial part of Iranian and Iranian diasporic history. However, it occurs to me as I sit in New York City in the summer of 2020 that the experiences of Iranian women more than 40 years ago may well resonate beyond only the context of Iranian society and its diasporas. We are currently in the midst of a national uprising in the United States against structural racism and state violence. This uprising is deeply informed by Black feminist and queer politics and organizing strategies. Demands for the abolition of police and prisons recall popular demands of the Iranian revolution to abolish Savak, the secret police force, and to free political prisoners. Furthermore, questions about the relationship between feminism and national freedom struggles are again being answered in the streets on a daily basis. Today, we are going to look at how issues of police brutality, imprisonment, and women's activism in Iran might be brought into conversation with our contemporary moment and location. I couldn't ask for a better guest and interlocutor for this task. I am delighted to introduce Shahla Talebi, Associate Professor of Religious Studies in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies at Arizona State University. Shala was a student activist who participated in the 1979 revolution, lived through the Iran-Iraq War, and left Iran for the U.S. in 1994. She is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, Ghosts of Revolution, Rekindled Memories of Imprisonment in Iran, published by Stanford University Press in 2011. The book focuses on her two terms of imprisonment, the first during the reign of the U.S.-backed Shah, and the second during the first decade of the Islamic Republic. It is a stunning philosophical meditation on what makes us human and on the range of human responses to repression, confinement, and suffering. Shala, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a great pleasure, really, to be part of this very, very important, actually, project, I think. is a fantastic idea. And when you told me, I was really excited about it. So I'm, I'm really honored to be, you know, to be in the program, to be the second person. And so thank you so much. Well, thank you. We're really honored to have you. Um, as part of this. So I want to begin by asking you to talk about your experiences, your memories of the Iranian revolution. And you were actually a political prisoner at the time when the revolutionary movement really took off. Um, you write about this in your memoir, but could you describe for us uh, just a little bit about the world you encountered upon your release from prison in 1978? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so I, I, we were released, um, a large number of prisoners um, were released actually on almost uh, two months, Alban, yeah, so three months before the revolution, actually. 
And um, there were only few prisoners left in prison at the time of women. There were only 15 uh, in, in, I mean, in Qasr prison. There were only 15 left. And the rest of us were all freed. Um, so the story of even our release, I've said a little bit in the, in the book, but I want to just kind of mention it was an interesting thing. So what happened was we didn't have any clue that this was happening under the pressure of the, of course, the revolution and one of the major actually uh, slogans of the, you know, people on the street was free political prisoners. So um, all of a sudden, the newspaper announces that 1,000 prisoners are going to be released, and then the name, our names are all printed. So the families knew before we did, and by the time we actually saw the, the news, men had already uh, been released in the middle, you know, you know, in the evening, late in the evening. So when they came to us and told us just all, out of nowhere, just leave. Um, we basically kind of got shocked and said, uh, we need to talk about it. And among ourselves, when we actually discussed it, there were two different approaches. So one was that the, if we shouldn't leave at night, because if we do, they do what they, they have done in Argentina, in Chile, in places like that. We always had this idea of the dictatorship of Iran and the Latin American kind of dictatorships. And there were a lot of, for us, in our mind, a lot of commonalities and similarities. Mm -hmm. So some of the people were saying, if you go in the middle of the night, they can shoot us, they can kill us, they can, you know, and then they say they were trying to to uh, to escape. So we didn't even take this whole, some people did not take it seriously, which were actually a large number. And then the rest of us, the small number, we said, we shouldn't leave at night, uh, we should actually stay and say we would not leave until all prisoners are freed. And um, and then there was this third, you know, kind of view that was saying, you know, going out and joining the revolution is more important than staying here. We can actually fight it from outside. And, and, and we were saying, you know, being in prison and be, it puts more pressure on the regime. If we go outside, we would be just one among many, but here, you know, so there was, there were all these conversations happening. But one thing was that um, that the, the, the majority agreed that we will not leave at night, which meant this created a situation where men were freed one by one at night, so nobody actually gathered. But when we went out in the morning in front of prison, there were large number of people. It was it's really a huge crowd. Wow. And uh, so there are, there were amazing, first of all, I mean, there, it was just amazing to step out and get into the crowd that they were trying to actually put, you know, pull you on their shoulders. And I remember I didn't want to go there. And so I kind of tried to escape from that. But it was like just amazing. And the, the people were like, everyone was almost like a family, you know, in that sense. They were like mm -hmm. asking you who, and then, the few things like people were asking for their disappeared children. Have you seen them? You know this, and and many of the families did not really know that this is women's. I mean, they knew that it was just that they it was so desperate that they were asking if you knew of my son. I mean, this that, and we were like we were in women's prison. We, we didn't really you know know men and so on and so forth. But basically, um, I remember I couldn't find my family, of course, for a while, and by. The the time I found there were groups of families who were already telling us, let's get into a car and go to the university. There is a march uh, that is, uh, you know, against, of course, the, the, the regime, but also for the freedom of the rest of the, you know, the, 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 the release of the rest of prisoners. So when I, by the time I got to see my sister and my mom and separately, because as I said, the crowd was so overwhelming that people were kind of mixed in different areas and they were kind of missing one another. By the time I saw them, I basically just said, I'm sorry, I have to go. And then I went with these strangers. And I remember in the car, there was the six years old uh, kid who basically told me if I knew how to spell um Marg Shah, which is death to the to the Shah, and he actually did that as the first grade kids do that, and so it was just you know it was shocking. It was really shocking, 
and we entered the university. The car stopped. We entered the you know major uh, you know plaza of the university, and the first thing I heard was fit to this fascistic regime. And then the sound of the crowd and the power of it literally made me feel like it was just so different from the way I had lived just less than two years before, where people would whisper about the Shah and say things about the Shah. And it was so different, this crowd, which was like, so that was like the experience of really at the power and the, the, the overwhelming sense of being part of a, a family, a large family, kind of, you know, the compassion of people, the, 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 the way they, they treated us as if we were just, you know, their kids. And mm -hmm. when we entered the place, you know, the few of us, including myself, we had remembered the name of the ones who had left behind in prison. So they asked us to come and actually give those names. So I actually took the microphone and gave the name. And so it was just... Wow, very... so you went straight from prison to a demonstration and giving a speech. <laughs> Not speech. We just well, right, gave the name of the right. prisoners who were left behind. But, wow. but it was, yeah, it was just this. And then it, it was amazing. So even though there was this large crowd, of course, this was a leftist, um, you know, group. It wasn't just any, all the people. But still, as we were walking, there were people like all of a sudden my sister is walking and I see her like and then my other sister is. So it was just weird that I, I actually discovered members of my family among the crowd. Wow. And, I, you know, so that was really the part of the exciting part of just joining the revolution. I, I felt like literally like, you know, you're part of you know, all of a sudden is like a dam is, you know, opens and you you see yourself in this huge wave of water that, that that pulls you in. So that was really very exciting moment. Wow. And and it's, you know, do you remember? I mean, women were part of it, right? They were just as present as men. Or how was that? Actually, in that uh, particular event, um, I saw more women than men, actually, uh -huh. now that I remember. Uh -huh. the, I mean, first of all, the entire revolution, you, you always saw women. I mean, women were very significant part of the revolution. Uh, it was it was never just like men and a few women there, or it was always women being like really the central, you know, part of the, the these movements. And in fact, as you know, in many of the, particularly in the religious kind of uh, demonstrations, they actually usually put women in front because the idea was that the, that the regime if the regime shoots the women it would be worse for them and so and so it would kind of it was kind of a way of making the regime you know kind of be a little bit you know less inclined to shoot and so and so right. forth so women were really very central and that day um because we had come in the morning directly from prison and it was only women who had directly come from prison to that demonstration we were the ones who went in front in the middle uh, there were these uh, tents and there were people who were kind of the organizers of the event and there were many young women in the uh, among the organizers and so on and so forth so we were actually the one who went there and gave the names and talked to people and um so it was very a prominent mm -hmm. role that women actually played in, in the revolution in that moment. So this was about two months before the Shah actually left. This was three yeah. months. So three, it was okay. it was Fort of Aban, which is Aban Azar de Bahman. So it's it's about four months, uh, but less than four months. So right. okay, and three and a half months. Yeah. So. So just for the sake of time, because I could ask you what you did on every single day of those months, but, but let's fast forward um, mm -hmm. to a few weeks after the Shah left. Um, mm -hmm. And I want to ask you about International Women's Day, about March 8th of mm -hmm. 1979. Mm -hmm. Where were you that day? Um, what do you remember from that day, from that week um, that in which we saw um, tens of thousands of women take to the mm -hmm. streets um, and advance a set of demands, particularly 
related to women's equality in the new society? So I was in the middle of the demonstration. I was in the march. And uh, the march, uh, one thing that I've noticed is that, of course, now when I read about the march, there are different kind of uh, parts of it that I wasn't even aware of. For instance, the fact that there were uh, Western feminists, feminists from France and the US who were there, I didn't even know at the time. Uh, so depending on where you were marching and who you, I mean, you know, it was that really, I mean, you've seen the pictures. It was really dense crowd. It wasn't just few people. It was a very dense crowd in the streets of Tehran. So depending on where you were, you could have seen some things and not others. Is that right? Yeah. So where I was, I remember on the one hand, uh, you know, the density of the crowd, the, 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 the passion with which people were actually really chanting, you know, that we have fought for the revolution, that we wanted to have freedom and we, are not, we haven't fought to get back to the, the, the dictatorship, to the despotism and so on and so forth. So those were there. But then there, on the side where I was walking, um, uh, where we were walking with a group of other, you know, friends and comrades, there were a few women who were very different from us. So we were mostly, you know, young university students, but these obviously were professionals, you know, so a little bit, a little bit older than us, dressed differently. Some of them were, wore makeup. And as you know, part of, and, and this is probably something we can get back to later on, part of this idea of being a leftist and a revolutionary was to really have a very strong stance against, you know, cosmetics and so on and so forth. So I remember we were like looking at these women and thinking, that's weird. And in my mind, I remember I thought it would have been better if they didn't do it because they're giving excuses because right there, there were these, uh, what they used to be called Hezbollah which were, um, you know, very early on, these, um, some of these people who were, you know, at the time, the, you know, the religious uh, revolution was very, you know, uh, popular. Khomeini was very popular. So there were some of the mm, people who were actually attacking, you know, or and, and, and chanting about our bourgeois, you know, how we had jewelries and makeup on and how we were fighting for the loose women and, you know, things like that. And I remember as they were chanting against us in, in, I was thinking, oh, they're looking at these women and they're finding excuses. So now when I think back is like how interestingly we were doing the job you know, even though we were in part of the movement and we were, you know, there, but we were again creating these little kind of forms of what what is the right way of being a revolutionary, and in that sense, that was like the experience that later I really reflected on a lot. Mm. That how some of these dominant forms and discourses of, you know, the right, the proper way of being a woman, a proper way of being a revolutionary, a proper how these you know, kind of conformisms had actually really uh, played at times a role in, um, and I'm not saying for every woman in that demonstration, later I can say a little bit about my own background, but it had to do with some of our, you know, our own background, of course. But it was something that I had a lot of conversations with other women who were thinking, oh, if it, if, if it was not for these women, probably they would not have found the same excuse. Even though later we realized they had they found excuses in everything you did. So just because some of our listening audience may not be as familiar with the history, um, you know, of how um, sort of gender was reconfigured during the Shah's time, could you just explain why this figure of the woman wearing makeup or you know that quote unquote type of woman, I guess, you know, middle class or upper class, you know, why that type of woman would be such a figure of, um, you know, would elicit such strong negative emotions from both leftists like yourself mm -hmm. and also people yeah. who you didn't mm -hmm. share the same exact politics with who were maybe on the more conservative end of the religious mm -hmm. forces. 
Yeah. So as you can imagine, I mean, part of it has to do with this idea of feminism that was very much against objectification of women. So we basically thought of any form of trying to kind of waste your time and your money and so on and so forth on making yourself more presentable as such uh, to others as a form of trying to retake away from the seriousness of your 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 your, your goals for the revolution for the you know to make making the society a better society for justice and so on and so forth so part of it had to do with that kind of the discourse that was also present in you know in the west as well you know the, the, there was that wave of uh, feminism where women had to be kind of more almost not manly as such but kind of really almost downplay the fact that they were women. Right. You know, so it was like they had to prove that they were as revolutionaries as these men were. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was part of it. Another part of it had to do with the particularities of the situation in Iran. Um, You know, there was the role of of the uh, the Shah played with the, uh, first it was the British and then the US. So there was this idea of, a different kind of even informal colonial kind of, is that right, mm-hmm. uh, uh, dominance in Iran and the Shah, the way we uh, consider the Shah as the puppet of the US um, and so on and so forth. So the idea was that there was a way of trying to uh, distract the young people from really what mattered in the society and, and make them to really just you know, go to the discos and, and dance and listen to these kinds of music and get dressed in a particular way and get, have makeup. So this whole idea for us was almost creating a sense as if particular forms of being in the world would not really fit into how to, one can be a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think is very significantly different from the way I noticed the youth of Iran of this generation are different. Mm-hmm. That for them being a revolutionary, uh, an activist and so on and so forth does not come with very kind of, again, when I'm saying narrow, there are different kinds of narrowness, but this idea that there are really rules of conduct right. Right. that you had to really abide by. And if you didn't, somehow you were not really a good revolutionary. Right. And you know, the context of Iran itself, is that right? There was, uh, every day you would hear from the radio and television, which I didn't watch that much, but radio you usually listen to, is that the communists share their women. And communist women in communism and in these leftists are, are loose women who don't care about anything and, you know, so on and so forth. And on the other hand, you know, we were coming from different kind of family backgrounds where you were still, even though their nuclear family as such was part of becoming kind of a more dominant feature of Iran, you still had uh, a lot of influence of the extended family. Is that right? Your aunts, your brothers, and so on and so forth. So there was always the pressure of even your own family having to respond to other members of the family, you know, the relatives and so on and so forth, about the fact that your your daughters are not really uh, basically dishonoring their reputation. They're not doing something really wrong. So those of us who were revolutionaries or considered ourselves revolutionaries actually thought of ourselves even more responsible to show that our being, you know, independent and strong women who spend not at the nights with, with male comrades at, on the top of the mountains and so on and so forth does not mean that we are loose women or we. So in a way, um, as my sister and I used to say, we were in some sense even stronger, you know, kind of conformist to some of the religious cultural kind of, you know, um, limitations that some of the religious actually people were on the top of that as you can imagine it was the question of modernity mm-hmm. as Afsan and Ajmobadi writes and, and I think it's really very telling it was that as modernity as unveiling women and bringing women to the uh, you know public 
spaces as factories and so on and so forth, universities and so on and so forth, became more common. Along with, there was an obsession, literally an obsession with cleansing both the language. So there were really distinctions about what language was the modern language, the meaning the language of someone who is modern. Right. So anything that, like loud voice, you would be called, sorry, but the language, gypsy, holy. Mm -hmm. For any loud voice, you were dehati, meaning rural. Any mm -hmm. the dress that was too colorful, too bright, as Mictasic writes about this, you know, the color um, and how modernity kind of dulls the color, actually. Mm -hmm. but there were forms of urban obsession with urbanity and modernity. Mm -hmm. that your language, any, any obscene word in your language was a, a sign of not being modern enough, a sign of being, you know, uncultured, a sign of... So I remember, like, going to the revolution, talking about revolution, going to the demonstrations in the uh, more, you know, uh, kind of uh, less affluent neighborhoods, you know, of the south of Tehran. Um, some of us could not could not see ourselves there because the kind of chance they had, they were, you know, they were shouting. We couldn't even, we couldn't even say it in whisper to ourselves. Right, right. So, and we thought, oh my God, this is so gross. Why they're talking about, for instance, you know, the, 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 the Shah's wife's, for instance, underwear and, you know, things <laughs> like that. So there was a different kind of, you know, um, opposition that for us had to be very, clear cut nicely, you know, kind of organized around particular forms of language, particular form of getting dressed. Um, so, as you know, yeah, sorry. No, so this is fascinating. So given all of that context, and thank you for kind of mapping out that broader context. Um, what made you go to the demonstration on March 8th? You know, what what was it that brought you there? And, and what were you hoping for or trying for by being there? Great. So to say that we were against, you know, for instance, what we considered as bourgeois forms of, you know, being a woman did not mean that we did not fight for independence, for women's rights. I mean, whatever our understanding of rights were, for instance, all the things about women having the right to have their children, having the right for divorce, having the right to get dressed the way they want. So just because we were thinking, oh, these women, it would be better if these women were not that way. That didn't mean that I was thinking that their government had the right to suppress them or any government for that matter had the right to tell them not to wear the way they want to wear. The same way that I would not have uh, ever, you know, condone unveiling women by force. Right. Is that right? Right. So the, the issue of women's rights, I mean, it's important to recognize that even though people say, oh, we didn't care that much about women's rights. Um, it's very important to really keep that in mind that many of us were very sensitive actually about the way we were treated as women. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so there were those uh, very strong actually ideas of, you know, that we as women were as, as important, as strong, as independent, you know, so that mm -hmm. those, I think, were actually important part of why we were there. So it wasn't just to show some kind of, you know, show off that we as women are against veil. There were really this idea that the revolution, at least for, for many of us, could not be a revolution if if, if it doesn't matter how I want to be a person, right. you know, and as a woman, what kind of person and what kind of woman I, I want to be. And that's the choice I make. And keep in mind that this is the time where the idea of uh, the right to what I think, the right to how one thinks is mm -hmm. very significant. Right. All right. So that's also another modernist discourse that was very much part of kind of, you know, combined with some kind of liberal notion of it. So all that was actually part of this mm -hmm. period. So, so tell me more about what you remember from the, the uprising itself, which lasted about six days of active mass demonstrations and sit-ins and things like that. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about um, your involvement in any ongoing women's movement activism that 
proceeded from there for the next year or two. But um, for those six days, um, what else do you remember? What else stands out to you as significant? Um, uh, the discussions, the debates, mm -hmm. the debates about what is important for this revolution, where this revolution is going. You know, so people always say, oh, the leftists in Iran basically just accepted Khomeini and supported Khomeini. It, it was not true. There was never just one voice in the revolution. There was never one feminism. There was never one way of being, you know, part of the revolution. There were many of us who were very much against, you know, the fact that, you know, when we went to these demonstrations, the moment that they basically told you to just say, you know, the things that they're saying, that the chance that they had, for instance, you know, fat feminine law, you know, whatever, yes, you know, it was like a religious kind of uh, slogan that basically meant that with the help of God, you know, victory is, is near. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So, okay. As a leftist, I had, a, you know, I, I didn't feel like comfortable saying that. Mm -hmm. But if I'm going to say that and you're not going to say non-maskan azadi, is that right? Bread, you know, housing and freedom. I'm not going to always be accommodating you. If you, if it's uh, unity, it has to be a compromises mm -hmm. of, of different forms. So in that sense, many of us did not necessarily agree. So going back to those six days you're talking about, there were amazing debates going on. Again, for instance, all those six days, I did not really know what what was happening with the Western feminists and so on and so on, because we didn't have time to even watch TV, to be honest. Right, right. And it's not the time of the media you guys have now where you can just get your cell phone and see what's going right, on. Right, right. Most of the time during the revolution, I didn't watch TV, you know. So most of us, we didn't know what's going on, except because we were part of the revolution. We were not sitting and watching ourselves. Right, Is that right? Right. So some of the things I did not know, but the debates about... What is this uh, regime about? What what's going to happen? Where they're going? What is our role? What how we should this, uh, push these? And there were people who would say, you know, we should we should try to be less you know less aggressive about things and try to kind of show a sense of unity because the revolution everyone felt like the revolution was just new and the U.S. and others were already j jumping over. And of course, part of the story is also you know, the way we often are selective in what we learn. Is that mm -hmm. right? And yeah. that's another story that there were things we didn't really know as much as we do now, of course. So with that knowledge, we were concerned about also the role of the U.S. Right. in trying to push the revolution back. And so the, the creating a balance between us not letting the government take over and hijack Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the dreams of the revolution mm -hmm. and on the other hand actually really be you know really pushed it, the government you know right. pushed and not allow them to do that that was something that a lot of debate was happening and going on about it and i i love the fact that even the women that at the time we had thought oh my god why they're dressed that way actually brought the conversation of what do you mean by freedom if that freedom does not really accommodate my way of being in the world? Mm -hmm. And those are really interesting, I think. Uh, that was most important. And at the same time, another dimension of it was to see the fraction already happening within the, within the population, you know, that there were many men and even women conservative. I mean, now we say conservative. At the time, it was, a you know, there were a lot of people coming at us and saying, what the hell are you doing? We just had a revolution. You know what it means to, to top, topple the Shah and you're already fighting. So the, there were those kind of things that were happening and a lot of tension was, was there already. So I have a couple of follow-up questions about that. One question is, in these debates, you know, were you or your comrades or people, was anyone using the term feminism? You know, did that circulate or was that kind of off limits because it had been kind of tainted by association with the West or with the Shah? I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of curious about the language there. So we, we used to use what we call pro-trade feminism. 
So it was, you know, a feminist proletary. So it was supposed to be a different kind of feminism that nowadays, if you think about it, it's very much kind of, you know, the, the black feminism and, you know, a different kind of. So it's a feminism that considers class, that considers, you know, the, 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 the question of social background, the, the, the educational background and so on and so forth. But this portrait in a sense that it, it it's fights for women's rights alongside fighting for social justice. So proletariat uh, feminism was the term? So it was... Wow, yeah, so interesting. Feminist yeah. proletariat. Uh-huh. So, 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 so you're, you're right that simple feminism as such, it was seen somewhat as kind of more Western, kind of bourgeois, white feminist. Right. Again, we, we didn't necessarily directly talk about white feminism as such. You know, it was more about bourgeoisie feminism. Is that right? right? So it's a kind of liberal bourgeois feminist. You know, that was the idea. But our feminism was different because we understood social justice. We understood. So, you know, for me, as someone living in the U.S. and thinking about how we can, um, you know, talk about patriarchy in a place like Iran without reinforcing all of the worst Islamophobic stereotypes and excuses mm. for, you know, U.S. intervention, it's really um, important to be able to think about forms of feminism that can account for multiple structures of oppression, multiple sources of oppression um, at the same time. And, and um, it sounds like that is what was emerging out of that uprising on the streets. Yes. And I, for instance, the, even though probably we did not go far enough to really think about, for instance, Kurdish people as probably... We, I don't remember. I mean, because it's easy now to say I thought about it that way, but I don't remember if we, for instance, understood the nation, Kurdish, you know, pop population thinking about the nation and necessarily saying, okay, if they want to separate and become a nation, that's fine. But I know that the question of ethnic, uh, you know, groups and the question of self-determination was very much part of our conversation, was very much something we, uh, we uh, you know, we really strongly believed in. That's why, you know, right after the revolution, for instance, you know, things that happened in Kurdistan, many leftists went there and became part of the conversations and so on and so forth. So so there, there were those kind of things. So, so, I mean, you know, the idea that the Kurdish women, that Azari's women, that Baluchi women, that the, these are different kinds of women. You can't topple all them, of them as just simply women. Right. I think it was really very much part of mm -hmm. why it mattered, why it, it's resonated to me so much when I read about black feminism, when mm -hmm. I read about, you know, feminism of uh, people of color. And, you know, I, I think that that is something that was really emerging from the reality of the particular ways nation states are created in places like Iran. Is that right? Mm -hmm. All these different, you know, ethnic groups and languages and arbitrarily you have all of a sudden no empire as such, but then right. the nation state that has one language and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, so the women's uprising in 79 in Iran, um, you know, folks were protesting uh, new forms of discrimination that the government was kind of testing out, was kind of trying to say, oh, we're going to make the veil mandatory for these groups of women, or we're going to abolish the family laws, and we're going to um, put something else in its place, and we're, and we're going to segregate, for example, schools. You know, all of these were these provocations, right, that brought women into the streets. Um, and at that time, you know, women, as you said, were charged with being Western, bourgeois, loose, um, but also separatist, you know, that, oh, you're having demands that are separate from mm -hmm. the demands mm -hmm. of the masses. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, women were not able to sort of win the argument that, mm -hmm. like, as you put it so beautifully a few minutes ago, that no revolution is really complete if it doesn't bring about, you know, the freedom of, of women as well, the self-determination for women as well. Um, mm -hmm. So I just wonder if you could, you know, reflect a little bit on 
why it was so hard to win that argument. You know, why women were so vulnerable to these charges of separatism, westernization, when Mm -hmm. there really was no evidence for that, right? I mean, you're describing a movement of women who were part of making the revolution, not a group of women who stood on the sidelines and weren't Mm -hmm. invested, right? Um, Mm-hmm. So, um, and not a group of women. I mean, as you said, you weren't even aware of the presence of a handful of Western feminists that happened to be there. They, you know, those Western feminists were not calling the shots. They were not the leaders. Not they were all. not at all. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so why was it so hard to make legible or to make compelling to the, to more people, you know, the demands and the passion of women yeah. in the streets in those days? Very interesting. I think it's, I mean, I read it, um, uh, in many ways, um, in the context of nation states, but critique, but also the legacies of colonialism, even even the anxieties about colonialism. Again, the fact that the Iranians uh, thought of the Shah, I mean, at least uh, right after, around the revolution, this became much more significant as the puppet of the US. Mm-hmm that we talked about the Iranian bourgeoisie as the, you know, the dependent bourgeoisie as comprador and so on and so forth. The, all those were forms in which the nationhood as the significance of one flag, one language, one so, one so, it, it became very significant. And of course, it was a masculine one. But so for that reason, the, the, the ethnicities, the the languages they, they they all had to serve even in the sense of kind of revolution regardless of all these uh, dreams that we had of a, of an Iran that respects you know the all the different ethnic groups all different languages and so on and so forth but the reality was that uh, in, in reality there was always the sense of still upholding the nation state and this upholding the nation state. Somehow, always managed. Of course, as we know, the the, the particular masculine reading uh, of the status quo, and which which somehow wants to keep the status quo, mm-hmm. is that constantly uh, warns you of creating. Is that right? Sectoritarianism, mm-hmm. creating kind of this unity or this harmony, and the harmony is not seen as all these different ways of, you know, being part of a revolution and 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 being part of making the world, is that right? Mm-hmm. It was, it was a, again, it was that idea of what is proper way. And of course, there was that proper way was the nation states and its masculine demands were on, uh, uh, you know, were the hierarchy. So it was a form of hierarchy mm-hmm. that anything else had to kind of move uh, in that direction. And any minute that the idea was that, oh, this is being prioritized at the cost of that. Right. You know, it was not seen as a multiplicity mm-hmm. of desires, dreams, you know, uh, and needs and so on and so forth that can be, you know, met in different forms. Right. Uh, I think that was part of it. But, uh, you know, another part of it, as you know, I mean, even here, there is constant, you know, why does the notion of, for instance, nonviolence? Any form of disobedience nowadays in this country is 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 gets to be seen as violence. Right, right. Is that right? And yet, any form of violence from the state comes as 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 part of the reality of what the state is supposed to be and do. Is that right? So, in that sense, I think there was always a sense of keeping the status quo. There yeah. was the sexual notion of uh, of both the state and the society. So, yeah, I want to follow up on that because I think, um, you know, there there are so many resonances for me um, between everything you're talking about and what we're living through right now in the United States. Um, One of them is that, you know, there are these calls for abolition of of police and prisons. Um, And, you know, you yourself are a living example of how a revolution against torture and against prisons can end up ultimately reproducing prisons and torture, right? And, you know, that is um, often used by, you know, say, right-wing forces in the the West to argue that, you know, revolutions always lead to tyranny. We should never even bother with them. You get something worse if you even try, right? There's all those kinds of very 
conservative arguments that people draw from that, you know, that experience that has happened in many places, not just in Iran, where people are fighting for freedom and end up reproducing, you know, more censorship, <laughs> more, you know, political prisoners um, and the like. And so, you know, what kind of lessons do you have about, you know, for, for social justice activists today, for people fighting today um, all over the world, you know, how do we avoid that problem of, of reproducing, possibly in different forms or with different ideologies, but essentially reproducing the forms, the very forms of unfreedom that people mm -hmm. are struggling against? I mean, as you know, this is such a difficult question. And I, and especially in the case of Iran, as you know, people always start, even people who were part of the revolution now talk about, oh, you know, if he had let the Shah, you know, continue what he was doing, Iran would be, have become a better, you know, forever and probably we, we had the chance of fighting for freedom and better democratic system than we have now and so on and so forth. So uh, aside from the fact that this is, I think, one of those really absurd ways of thinking about the past and 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 history as if you know this as if it was like a force that you could actually stand against aside from the fact that why people you know fought at the time it right. was very significant. There were many, many significant reasons. It was not just people got, uh, you know, on the wrong side of the regime and decided that they want to do that. But having said that, I think one thing I have and again, this is this is difficult to say because what when I say a feminist approach mm -hmm. to revolution, mm -hmm. a feminist approach to uprisings, mm -hmm. a feminist approach to, I don't mean women necessarily, right? Because one can be a woman, and in many ways become Margaret Thatcher. Yes, yes, absolutely. You could become, you know, so. Um, just because somebody is a woman doesn't necessarily make that person, you know, a person of compassion, a person of, you know, so and so forth. But I think a feminist approach, the way I understand it, is a kind of approach that does not think about always thinking about, you know, getting and, and, and acquiring the power, is that right, at any cost mm -hmm. or possessing something at any cost. Mm -hmm. it, it thinks about creating space, mm -hmm. creating space that even if it's not yours, but when you are occupying that space, you're trying to make it a compassionate, a relaxing, a peaceful a, a space that allows for the potentials to thrive. Mm -hmm. It does not dictate one way of being in the world. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that we did not have feminisms that thought about, you know, we, ha we know that, but I'm talking about an ideal form that mm -hmm. I think of feminism. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So for instance, in Iran, many women were really significant part of organizing the revolutionary movements. I mean, I think about the things that even a person of like my age without any real background in revolution, I, uh, I wrote one piece for a, for in, in a factory where I was working. Um, and I wrote it in like this little, you know, kind of a poster like something about one of our, uh, you, know, fact uh, you know, factory uh, labor workers who had died of cancer and worked until the last day. Mm. So I wrote something just because I was so emotionally, you know, outraged and, and touched and sad and so on and so forth. And and under that, I basically wrote a few you know, ways of how we as, as, you know, as workers in this factory demand these things. This was right after the revolution, a little while after the revolution. Mm. Before I knew it, the entire uh, factory was shut down and, and uh, workers were on the strike. And this became like one of the most famous like strikes and teaching and so on and so forth and sittings and so on and so not teaching, sitting. So what I mean, and yet, Yet when it became about who makes the, the shots uh -huh. in the end of the day, yeah. is that right? Yeah. Ended up being men, is that right? And that this is something I, I say even about the elections in this country. Mm -hmm. This has been something I, from the beginning I've, I've, I've been really annoyed by, that everyone thinks, 
oh, if you say this, you won't get elected. So the question of the process, is that right, does not seem to be as significantly important as what comes out of. Mm. If my mother in a house with, with, with only two rooms, sometimes only one room, with nine children, with no really, you know, comfortable facilities, with a little bit of, you know, you know, something that she had to cook on and was also keeping the heat and so on and so forth. With the, really the least, she could create a sense of community and, and family, and, and family mm -hmm. so that our door would be open to anyone who could come, even a stranger. Mm. And whatever we had on the table, we didn't have table on the floor, uh, that that person could also have. Mm. That process is something that is very different from saying, oh, only my kids could, should have something. Right. Because these are my kids. Right. This is my house. Right. I remember every single time, again, I'm uh, branching out, but I always say feminism is not about what we learn necessarily only in the books. It's also what we learn from women whose daily experiences, many women whose daily experiences of care, of compassion, of, of, of management, mm -hmm. of management with compassion, mm -hmm. management with plurality of different needs and desires mm -hmm. and, and a different kind of tolerance. You know, these are the things that I think are very significantly important. For my mom, it, it, it matters how she could think about ways to feed all of us. Right. And yet never, ever close the door on people who could come in. You know, and that I think is, is significant. In this election, in all these elections, every time I see Anything can happen, can go. The person can write off the people they have been friends with for the all their lives just because at that time is not acceptable to be friends with that person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the betrayal starts even before the person is elected. If you can betray there, you can betray when you have the power. Is that right? right. The idea of not having the power, not thinking about place necessarily placing yourself, mapping yourself into, rather how to create forms of itinerary. Life is, is not static something that happens only today. Right. But it happens because of all these different ways. I may have the worst experiences of my life, but if I remember the way in those difficult moments, we shared moments of friendship, compassion, love, that is something that makes me a different person. Mm, mm. But even if I had, you know, gained something, but in the process I sacrificed all these things, what I gain is not going lead to lead to anything. Right. So that's how the revolution also happened. This is not because the revolution was a mistake, but because we fought, not we as, you know, because the fight was over gaining the power and keeping the power, not how you gain the power, how you keep the power. Many of the women who are leading the movement in the U.S. today, the movement for black lives and for abolition, um, very consciously see themselves as inheriting a legacy of previous generations of women of color, black feminists, you know, who've come before them and who really... Um, cut their teeth on the anti-racist and anti-colonial movements of the 60s and 70s and developed a kind of revolutionary feminist approach out of that experience. And so it's interesting to think about the way that you're describing, you know, potentially um, an inheritance coming out of the Iranian revolutionary experience of a, of a kind of feminism uh, um, whether we call it proletariat feminism or whatever, whatever we want to call it, um, revolutionary feminism, whatever, I don't know the right language really, but that we might um, see as a kind of legacy, as a kind of um, precursor, right, to a f future possibilities for thinking about um, the relationship between state repression, gender, sexuality, the national struggles for self-determination and sovereignty, and a kind of um, a more capacious idea of what freedom, you know, really means. So I guess um, 
I guess my last question is, can you imagine a world without prisons? Can you imagine, you know, mm. abolition? Um, any thoughts about sort of the, the vision for the future that we, we need to take, take with us into the streets? Oh, God. Um, it's a very important question. <laughs> so what... So what I imagine, there there is one thing one always, I think, those of us who think of justice, think of different forms of, uh, of social justice in all its different forms, uh, cannot but aspire towards a different form of being in the world, a different kind of world in which prisons, police brutality, you know, these forms of masculine forms of power, these forms of, you know, dominant forces, you know, really putting everything on, you know, mapping out everything. That's one of the things that creating a sense of this is the right way to be, this is the right mode, this is the rational form of, you know, doing this and that, giving the law a different kind of force that is at once constantly the, the matter of interpretation to particular groups of people, and yet constantly as if it's the world of God for others. Right. And 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 so I want to think about, and I, I purposefully want to imagine a world without prison, without police brutality, without police, as, mm-hmm. without military. Mm-hmm. I want to imagine a world without borders. I want to imagine a world where masculine forces are not. Uh, capable and and doing what they're doing in in a different world where compassion and care and and potentials and thriving of different multiple you know colors are possible i want to imagine those mm-hmm. does that mean that i see that i could see my lifetime so these are forms that also in the revolution i think the, what matters is that it doesn't die away right it, part of our imagination, parts of our, our, our desire, part of, you know, and it's up to us to tell those stories in a different way. Because the stories are told, as we saw, you know, in this autonomous zone in Seattle, who knows who killed whom? Right. But it's ob- it was obvious from the day that started, I thought, I said, something is going to happen. They're going to kill someone. And then they're going to blame the entire thing as chaotic, as violence, and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. They have all the means to tell the stories the way they want and twist things the way they want. It's up to us how to tell different stories. Thank you so much, Shala, for joining me today. I so appreciate your generosity, and this has been a fascinating um, conversation. So thank you very much. Shala Talabi is Associate Professor of Religious Studies in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies at Arizona State University. She is the author of the book, Ghosts of Revolution, Rekindled Memories of Imprisonment in Iran, published by Stanford University Press in 2011. You can check out the first interview in this series with Homa Hudfar at statushour.com. For Status, I'm Manije Nasrabadi. Thank you. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, Email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com dot com.